Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl. Someday I'm gonna make her mine. Oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make her mine. Boom, boom. That, Dominic, uh, as of course you'll know, as a top historian of the 60s, was the Beatles, Her Majesty. Was it? Yes, it it was. I felt that you didn't really, you, you only approached that half-heartedly tom by your standards so we 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 meet in the wake of your absolutely stellar hercule Poirot, and i and by those very high standards i felt you the liverpudlian accent was was, unless that was your liverpudlian accent no it wasn't no no well i wasn't singing it as paul mccartney i was singing it as a tribute to the musical tradition that the beatles embodied and indeed (laughs) as a tribute to her majesty there were levels of nuance in there that i didn't appreciate (laughs) That's why I'm here to tease them out for you, Dominic. Yeah, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, and talking of teasing out, the reason that I picked on that was partly because uh, I know the lyrics, so that was easy. Um, but also because actually I think there's quite a lot of meaning in there that we could pick out. So we've got the, the, the platinum jubilee of, of uh, the Queen coming up. So um, there'll be lots of people, Capel Loft preeminent among them, who will be wanting to tell the Queen that they love her a lot. Uh, and there'll be lots of people getting a metaphorical belly full of wine because yes. we've got a holiday, haven't we? And there are all these kind of these cakes and things that the platinum jubilee cake and stuff that apparently very complicated to make. No, I thought it was. I thought it was very easy with just that you just add lemon or something. No, no, I've, I've read a, I read an article. Oh, it was in the Guardian, I think. So what <laughs> it's expect? probably wrong, then, isn't it? <laughs> um, anyway, yes, we're just wittering. Um, so for people who don't, for outsiders, we should say it's the Queen's platinum jubilee. It's a moment of seismic significance for every right-thinking Briton, isn't it, Tom? Yes. And uh, we thought we'd do a Jubilee, a special Jubilee podcast. And Tom, we've got a guest, haven't we? A very exciting guest. We do indeed. And so we have Francis Christie, who is the deputy chairman of Sotheby's, who are kindly sponsoring um, this episode. And Francis, I mean, with your surname being Christie, you must be as bored of people making jokes about that as I am of people making jokes about Spider-Man. It's the deputy chairman of Christie's called Francis Sotheby. (laughs) That so would also not, be cool. It's not quite as cool as Christie at Sotheby's, I think, obviously, because I am Christie at of Sotheby's. Course, of course. Your area of specialisation is modern British Irish art. Uh, well-known face on the Antiques Roadshow. But specifically, you're here because you have curated a special kind of festival, a Platinum Jubilee Festival at Sotheby's, which will be going on from, when is it? End of, end of May through to end June? End of May till the middle of June, and we'll have stuff going on right to the end of June. And, and that's going on in... At, at New Bond Street at your... At New Bond Street, right in the middle, 34 to 35, free and open to the public. <laughs> and you've got you've got celebrities coming in to give talks. You've got Andrew Roberts, is that right? And We've got loads of things going on. We've got talks for kids from Michael Mapurgo up to a battle of the bears. They've got dancing bears from the Balkans. <laughs> they? Pad- Paddington versus Winnie the Pooh. Oh. oh, so not gladiatorial. Oh, <laughs> not gladiatorial. But although, I mean, you could put you could put in some. Um, I'm sure you could put in some um, some ideas to make it gladiatorial. Um, but Battle of the Bears, we're very excited about. We've got a Battle of the Queens as well. Um, Ooh, Queen that? Victoria versus Queen Elizabeth the First. You know, we had uh, we had the World Cup of Kings and Queens. Yeah. Um, and uh, actually, I think Elizabeth II she got to the semi-finals, didn't she? Did she? And who was she against? She, she was. I, I think she was against Athelstan. And who, so who was the winner? Athelstan. Athelstan. Uh, we thought it would be Elizabeth first who did make You haven't final. got an Athelstan theme at your Sotheby's <laughs> exhibition. S- sadly not, but I can make a suggestion. It's not too late. <laughs> well, let's see if we can work it in today. Um, because um, today's podcast, we're, we're, we're structuring it around six items that you have chosen from um, the exhibition that you're staging, each one of which highlights uh, a distinctive aspect, not just of the Elizabethan age, but of Elizabeth II herself and and our relationship to her so um what is the first that you have chosen so i think let's go for the most obvious one that hopefully everyone would recognize anyway um and that's the andy warhol portrait of queen elizabeth ii well obviously we're on a podcast so people can't see the image should i describe it 
Do. Um, it's, it's, um, as a lot of people know, Andy Warhol love, loved popular images. So he would take photographs of celebrities and people. And he once said, um, I want to be as famous as the Queen of England. So it was apt then when he made her one of his subjects. So annoying all the Scots and Welsh and... Yeah, and, and Northern, Irish, Northern yeah. Irish, don't forget them. Yeah. Um, so he took one of the formal portraits from the 77 Silver Jubilee by someone called Peter Grudgeon. And he styled that photo, I guess, with colour in his own, with his own celebrity treatment. And I guess that in itself could have been quite controversial at the time because, you know, perhaps the Queen yeah. is above celebrity treatment. So um, I'm, I'm kind of looking at it at the moment. She's got kind of Joker style bright yeah, red lips, hasn't she? <laughs> she looks like a kind of Gotham City villain. And with, with purple face. Yes. Um, purple skin, rather, and uh, deep blue hair. But I don't think the Queen is above celebrity, and I don't think she ever was. So some people might see this as the collision of the celebrity with something sacred, almost. Dare I say sacral, Tom? <laughs> we'll um, come to that, I'm sure. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I would say the Queen... Uh, when she born 1926 um so she's born into a world where the celebrity culture already exists through gossip magazines and um sort of picture post type things i mean i know that's it's heyday comes a little bit later but um that the royal that she was always a celebrity even when she was a little girl and that warhol's not doing anything necessarily new with this i would say um i mean she's arguably I know, I know we don't think of her as a celebrity because we think of film stars and rock stars as celebrities, but you could argue she's the single most recognisable celebrity of the 20th century, couldn't you? I think, I think she is. And I think that's sort of what's so clever about Andy Warhol, Warhol portraying her like this, is that like, the Brits would never portray her like this. But it takes a kind of American, cool New Yorker to show the Queen in the same way that he showed Marilyn Monroe. And I think that, that sort of shows what the world thought of her as well, that you know, she was totally, she was totally deserving of this amazing accolade in a way um, to be treated as the ultimate celebrity. And I guess we wanted to choose this picture because, you know, she's, she's the only queen that's really been in technicolor, if you like. You know, she's the first monarch to have their coronation filmed. The other thing about this image, so for, yeah, it's, it's your kind of classic wall, but it also, is it not very similar to a kind of it's, a, it's it's an icon. I mean, it's literally an icon, as in a kind of orthodox, you know, the sort of icons that you would see in Russian or Greek or Ukrainian churches or something. The sort of, the framing of it is very similar to an icon. And the queen, that sort of thing that in Eastern Orthodoxy they had with icons, which is they were very kind of unearthly and they were not deliberately not naturalistic and they didn't show emotion and all that sort of thing. I mean, that kind of seems right for the queen, doesn't it? Because the whole... She's always been as much symbol as kind of a flesh and blood personality. Yeah. Well, she doesn't have a lot to say. So, I mean, that's that's kind <laughs> thanks, of the point of her. Paul. But that is kind of the point of her, isn't it? I mean, yeah, of course. You know, you kind of get intimations that in private she's capable. An absolute you know, laugh a minute. Well, Go. I think I think was it Tommy? Is it Tommy Lassells or Lascells? Yeah, Tommy that, Lassells. Yeah, that, Tommy Lassells said that um, she, she's she, something like. She's not funny, but she's quite a good sport. Did he say that on the Crown, or did he say? No, I think. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah, he, exactly. he actually, I, I'm, well, I'm quoting from a book that I read in in uh, preparation for this. Uh, Robert Hardman's Queen of the World: The Global Biography. Which actually, he's, out, talk, think, he's talking in our festival. Is he? Well, okay. So, yeah. so he could he could probably absolutely nail that. But his book is, I mean, essentially, is a kind of elaboration on this theme: the idea that she's not just the Queen of England, or indeed of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, or Northern Ireland, or indeed um, the the head of the Commonwealth, but she is. As Dominic, as you said, probably the single most recognisable face to people across the globe. Um, and in that sense, perhaps has a kind of international significance that is greater than we might be, you know, we might we might think. Well, we've called our exhibition um, Power and Image. And then the, 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 the portraits, the painted portraits, the subtitle is Royal Portraiture and Iconography. It's exactly what you're saying. They, they become icons. They are icons yeah. of their time. But, but most monarchs weren't icons, though, Francis, I would say. So most monarchs were kind of flesh and blood, well, ridiculous well, so, characters. So, we, so our portrait exhibition, we're not focusing on all monarchs. We decided to be really, really niche. And we've gone for the, the seven queens regnant only. So just the queens. Okay. No kings, just queens. So here's so, a question for you. Have you included Matilda? Not yet. It's not, again, no. it's not too late. Not, not too late. Not too late. And Tom, I know what you're going to ask. 
Have they included Athelflaed? Lady well, she of the Mercians. She, but she wasn't a queen. Oh, she's a queen so of your heart, though. She, absolutely. She's the lady of the Mercians of my heart. No well, question we, we could, about we that. Could, we could maybe do, um, you know how, like, when they had the Paris Salon and then they had the Salon where the all the pictures yeah. <laughs> they got rejected. We could yeah. do, like, a, an alternative but, queen. queens. <laughs> yeah, lady Jane Grey. <laughs> but, 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 I mean, on the, on the topic of the queen as a global icon, presumably she, I mean, she's the only monarch that Warhol painted. I mean, you know, there are loads of, there are lots of queens. Yeah, he actually but, did but other she queens. she is the queen. She didn't, did he, he didn't do any other British monarchs because we only had, we've only had the queen. But he, his... what, he kind of painted he did, the, queen, he did of, actually... the queen of Netherlands? Yeah, he did. Oh, that, that really blasts my whole theory yeah. out of the water then. Yeah, but sorry. how can we never see oh. that image? I mean, we never see that image. Well, she's not the queen of, she's not the queen of Britain, is she? No, she's not as famous. Mean. If people say the queen, by and large, they mean Elizabeth II. They mean our queen. Yeah, in America. So in the first, uh, every now and again in this podcast, we like to bring in the Naked Gun films. And in the first um, Naked <laughs> yes. Gun film, in the first Naked Gun film, the plot, as you will no doubt recall, Francis, hinges on an attempt to assassinate the Queen. That tells you how much, that she's immediately recognisable to an American audience, because of course that film's for an American audience. She has a very distinctive dress style. Yes. And apparently she, she goes for kind of the very bright primary colours. So that she can be easily seen in walkabouts and things like that. And people right? will recognize her. Um, so that, again, is a kind of a, an example of branding, I suppose. Well, she's surely more recognizable for longer than any other world figure in the 20th century. I mean, other people were more famous for five years or something. But to have had that kind of longevity and to, out, you know, to outlast, I don't know, Mandela, Gorbachev, Reagan, JFK, Nixon... Khrushchev, all these people well, that she uh, met. Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe to talk of the, you know, the Warhol yeah. icons. Um, but Dominic, just on the topic of, of the Queen and, and her international role, is she anything more than a symbol? Has the role that she's played, say, as head of the Commonwealth? I was about had, to say head of the Commonwealth, yeah. Because she know, really cares about that, doesn't she? I think she that's does, one thing yeah. that she does care about. Well, no, but, but what's key about it, though for the people in the commonwealth that's also good branding because essentially your monarch is also the queen so even though she's not directly impacting government her she's the figurehead in all of these places it's almost like it's like the ultimate social media you're out there in all those countries anyway regardless of having to sit on a throne there do you know when it so when it first commonwealth first gets set up and it was the it was george VI, um so the, it wasn't automatic that the queen was going to become head of the commonwealth and basically, it was Nehru who swung it for her. So he, he so? yeah, he sent a kind of congratulatory telegram. But do you know the um, the Latin word that was used to describe George VI's role as head of the uh, the Commonwealth? Enlighten us. It was princeps, which is the title really? that Augustus Caesar. Like Augustus, used. yeah, yeah. To avoid the name Rex, because it would have been offensive. Rex King in Latin to, it would have been offensive to uh, to the Republic. They're quite different characters in India. Aren't they? Augustus yeah. and George yes. the Sixth. Yes, they are. Um, they the Commonwealth are. thing I think is really important, and I think is um, she has played that role with such gusto and such enthusiasm in a way that I suspect almost anybody else would have put a foot wrong, particularly during the period of decolonization, when she played it so cleverly and she was so sensitive to kind of local, um, sort of local sentiments in the various countries that had once been imperial kind of possessions. The next object, I think, kind of is linked to what we were saying about her being so recognised. And that's this amazing Punch cartoon by E.H. Shepard, which yeah. was on the bannerhead of Punch magazine the week of the coronation, which was May 27th, 1953. Um, and for those listeners who, don't, who can't recall, E.H. Shepard was the famous illustrator of Winnie the Pooh and Wind in the Willows. And there's an amazing design he did where you've got Eeyore, to Toad of Toad Hall dressing up in, you know, regal robes. You've got Pooh trying on a crown. You've got Piglet studying Debrettes, you know, just to get ready. Ooh. And uh, Dominic, we've got Owl, to whom you were compared by the Times. I wanted to, to bring this up, actually. So I was very pleased that you chose this, Francis, uh, because the Times reviewed this podcast and said that Tom was like Tigger and that I was like Owl, wise and scared. <laughs> And I was but really Tigger. Tigger's not on this. Tigger's not on no, this. No, Tigger's so, not even oh, significant enough to be on no. the banner. I, do you know, I don't think we should do this one. I and think uh, we move on to the next one immediately. And the morning that review came out, I had a message from Tom on my WhatsApp at kind of some ungodly hour, like six thirty-one a.m., saying, "I can't believe they called you Owl. This is absolutely outrageous. You're not Owl at all. You're Eeyore." 
<laughs> well, and Eel's there as well. Eel's there as well. Anyway, um, so anyway, apart from reminding us of this splendid um, notice in the Times, why did you choose this this cartoon? So my point about this is, I think in kind of British collective, I don't know, collective knowledge, if you like, um, in the Queen's reign, there are a few characters as recognisable as the Queen. And I kind of think these characters, E.H. Shepard's drawings of Pooh, They've yeah. got to be the most recognisable, just for you know generations past, but also kids today still. Well, Tom has see a theory about this. Okay, so so I I think in a way it illustrates the opposite because I think these are Edwardian figures. Um, these are figures um, very much certainly of the, uh, before the Second World War, and I would say that the image people if people think of Winnie the Pooh now, they're going to think of the Disney character rather than the Eight Shepherd. We I, I've had a massive kind of you know grumble about this but I well, think, he does have I think, an american accent in disney doesn't he yes yes yeah. so so what what this sums up for me is just how old the queen is i mean i know that's a really obvious thing to say when she's celebrating her, her platinum jubilee so so one of the things that struck me reading this book on queen of the world she first travels abroad when she's 20 in 1947 and she goes it's to south africa with the, the king and then queen and while she's out there she meets a whole load of veterans of the Boer War some of whom are, are actually birds who, who, you know, who fought against the, the British. But one of them, and Dominic, you'll be excited about this, one of them, he'd been in Sudan uh, when, in the year that Gordon died. Oh, my word. So he'd been on the expedition to, to that's, that's rescue General exciting. Gordon. Yeah. So the Queen met, met somebody who knew, yeah. who, you know, who'd, who'd um, been on that expedition. And it just seems insane in 2022 that that would even be possible. That that person is still the monarch of the head of state. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, I mean, her first prime minister was Winston Churchill, who's, I mean, Churchill was a Victorian, you know, born in the Victorian era. And and the people that she must have grown, well, the, the book, the children's books that she read, you know, when she was growing up would have been Victorian, Edwardian. Yeah. Well, they're changing books. guard at Buckingham Palace. But isn't that also her point that she is like this bridge, not only to the early part of her life, but also a bridge through history. You know, she's the seventh of the seven queens. Regnant. Yeah, of course. Um, and I suppose, I don't, maybe this is where I can slot in my next object, which is we've borrowed um, one of her coronation Bibles. Oh, now Tom's very excited about this. But the point of showing sort of one of her coronation Bibles is that links back to Queen Elizabeth the first coronation Bible and how that's sort of become a thing that all monarchs have a special yeah. coronation Bible. And I think to lots of people, they might think, well, you know, why do you need a special? Why can't you just use the normal Bible? I suppose it also shows the degree of detail of our pageantry. You know, we can't yeah. just use the same Bible. Well, the whole point of, before we get into the Bible, the whole point of the Queen to most people is that she's precisely as you say, I would say, that she is a an embodiment of a link with generations that have gone before. She's the incarnation of tradition. And that's why actually um, suppressing her personality has been so important because it allows you just to see her as this kind of avatar of of history. Yeah. Um, the other thing about the Bible, I think you would have to have a very particular Bible. I mean, you're not going to use the Good News Bible at your, um, <laughs> your coronation, are you? I mean, Prince Charles might, but I wouldn't approve of it. Anyway, Tom, um, I know you want to talk about Bibles. Well, I mean, it's much old. I think it goes back, obviously, much, much further than than even the foundation of the British monarchy or the English monarchy. I mean, this is taking us right back to uh, the anointing of kings and queens in the Old Testament. And it's a reminder that the coronation ritual, you know, for the queen, it's a sacrament. It's a sacramental um, ritual. And I think she takes it completely, you know, has taken it completely seriously. She's a very, very devout Christian. I think she completely believes it. And again, I think that that is an aspect of, if you like, her kind of antiquity. Because I think she has a, you know, she 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 believes in dare I say, the sacral quality of the coronation ritual and therefore as her, her role as an anointed monarch in a way that I would imagine only Capel Loft of her loyal subjects probably still does. Well, that's why think, when you? they had the cameras in, the cameras weren't allowed to capture yeah, because the it's, most it's intimate moments. absolutely sacred, sacred moment. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether, you know, when the time comes for the new king to be crowned and anointed, quite what, what people will make of all this. But he he himself he wants to be a defender of faith, doesn't he? He de well he does, and the queen. I mean, the queen is perfectly happy with that as well. I mean, she she clearly is very devout and committed to her role as um, 
Supreme Governor of the Church of England. But she's also perfectly happy with the multi-faith aspect, particularly of the Commonwealth, because, because, you know, there are more Muslims and Hindus in the Commonwealth than there are Christians. So she's never had a problem with that. And in yeah. fact, Dominic, we've, we've, um, we've got our uh, charity thing that we're doing at St. Martin in the Fields on Monday. And actually, um, there was a multi-faith celebration in St. Martin Fields in 1966 to celebrate the, the, you know, the many different faiths of the Commonwealth that generated quite a lot of controversy and a lot of blowback from bishops on this. And so the Queen has uh, Westminster Abbey as a royal peculiar. So basically, she can do what she likes with it. Is that so, right? Yeah. So, so now they have these kind of Commonwealth, um, you know, spiritual celebrations in, the, in Westminster Abbey. But maybe it's just her, it's just her approach to faith, as you say she can totally empathize with everyone else's faith, which is what makes her so powerful as the head of the Commonwealth too. Absolutely. I think, I think that's absolutely it. She, she, because she believes in, because she's so deeply Christian and so content and, and and, and rooted in her faith, other people's faith are not an issue. I I think that that now, I mean, we, we live in a kind of thought for the day world. I should explain for non-British listeners. This is a a radio slot on the, uh, on the morning news where various people from different faith traditions all come on and say exactly the same stuff. They, do. they basically say exactly <laughs> the thing that your headmistress says when you're six. I, I, and I think that therefore it has a much, you know, it has much less kind of potency. And also the kind of the, the, the fact that it's a very Protestant ritual. I mean, that's the other thing that I think people will find quite odd. It's quite sectarian ritual. And again, going back to Elizabeth I, I mean, you know, she, she was a Protestant queen. Well, one of the one of the portraits that we've borrowed is one of um, Mary, Queen of Scots, and I, and I think that going back to the Bible, I think one of the amazing things about an amazing Bible is all of that is summed up in this very intimate object. Um, and you know, we've got to remember books back in the day; they were that that was the ultimate luxury object to have a beautifully bound, illuminated manuscript. How old is this Bible? For the coronation, there was a series. Um, there were twenty five special copies made to mark the coronation and the so with with books it's all about bindings and they were the bindings were created and designed by probably the most famous 20th century binders in britain who are people called sangorsky and sutcliffe they're established in 1901 they've got the 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 royal warrant and the 1953 bible it's actually got quite a cool geometric pattern on it so i suppose it reflects that sort of of britain yeah it's very 50s kind of yeah it's very 50s um design isn't it and then there's i mean you can't you can't miss that it's regal because there's about 15 crowns on it yeah. and is it um, is it the king james version it can't be any other yeah it can't be any other it'd be ludicrous to use the good news bible yeah. to be crowned it could be revised stand version or i don't know whatever mm, i think you've got to use the king james haven't you i think it's unbritish not to when um charles becomes king this to me will be the absolute limits test to whether i support him <laughs> on their nature and of course you don't support him anyway because you're on record as saying in a succession crisis you're backing prince edward i am I, I'm you? on record as being his bannerman. Yes, I think he'd be a wonderful. I think he'd be a wonderful king. It's just is that just because he's the youngest? Or? No, it's because he said to Tom what he clearly says to all <laughs> writers that he meets. I enjoyed your book, <laughs> so I'm now I've pledged my sword to him. Yeah, <laughs> and I shall be honest. Seconds for it before defense. he, I think seconds before he met you, someone whispered in his ear, "Tom Holland, author, not Spider Man." Yeah, that's enough <laughs> of your uh, honestly, Dominic. Right, I think we should take a break now. We will see you after the break for more sober. <laughs> right royal yeah right royal, so we've done, royal we've done, well we've done quite well we've done half of them i think we've done halfway we're halfway through the yeah. top six artifacts from sotheby's exciting exhibition about the queen and her jubilee and we'll see you after the break for three more Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, In the first half, as you may remember, um, we dealt in a very profound and serious way with the three uh, first artefacts that Francis Christie has chosen for their exciting exhibition about the Jubilee and about the life and times of Queen Elizabeth II. And now, Francis, you're going to surprise us with number four. So what's number four? Because we were so serious in the first half that maybe we should go for like proper controversial as the first one. And that's later on the year, we'll be exhibiting it, but we're selling it later on the year. It's one of Jamie Reed's famous designs um, for the Sex Pistols. And it's their God Save the Queen poster, in which, for those who don't know the poster, um, Jamie Reed took a very staid photo of Her Majesty the Queen by Cecil Beaton. 
and he essentially graffitied it, graffitied out her eyes and her mouth using news type, which say "God Save the Queen" and then the Sex Pistols over her mouth, and then he mounted it um, on a Union Jack. So this is from 1977. It's the year of the Silver Jubilee, isn't it? It is also the peak of kind of the moral panic over punk and over the Sex Pistols, and the song "God Save the Queen." Well, I mean, there's still some debate about whether it really peaked at number two or whether there was an evil conspiracy to stop it from getting to the top of the charts. I'm actually a little bit sceptical about the conspiracy theory myself. But, um, Tom, are you a big Sex Pistols fan? I, I, I approve of them having happened. <laughs> <laughs> can you sing Can you sing God Save the Queen, seeing that you sang at the beginning? God Save the Queen, the fascist regime, she ain't no human being. I can't remember the rest. Yeah. Something that's, like that. That's sort of not, not the message that Southern is wanting. Yeah, no, no, that's, <laughs> that's not the message. But if I said, can I get back to nah. the time? <laughs> that was that was Johnny Rotten, of course. That was that was a very good impersonation. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so, what does this show? I mean, it shows that um, well, she ain't no human being. So, this is the use of the Queen as as. It's not quite satire, is it? Because what's it satirising? Or is it satirising the cult of the Queen, would you say? It's, it's quite interesting it's to think of it next to the Warhol. It? It, yeah, it's kind of playing off, I suppose, you know, even if you can't... It's playing off both that image of power, the tiara, the, even without seeing her eyes and mouth, you know that's the, the Queen. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the Sex Pistols chose to kick against the Queen, not... A prime minister and Yeah, not- but it was because it's a silver jubilee and because everyone's been kind of, you know, right royal garden parties yeah. and street parties and all that kind of stuff. And and this is the kind of stuff of tea towels. And, and then and then they had the boat, remember? The boat on on the, the Silver Jubilee weekend that sailed yeah, past with Malcolm yeah. McLaren and yeah, blaring it out past the Palace of Westminster. It's kind of sticking it to the man, isn't it? Or I suppose in this case the woman. I mean that's the fun of it. I also think it's, it shows actually in Britain we're really lucky in that um I mean her reign has been this massive explosion of British creativity, but also, you know, I guess, freedom of speech. People can come up with whatever they want to come up with. Yeah. Um, and that's there was a cool. huge There was a huge controversy at the time. So do you want to know what um, the uh, Conservative Law and Order spokesman of the uh, GLC, the Greater London Council, said about this image? Was he in favour of it as a, a celebration <laughs> of free speech and artistic self-expression? He said it was absolutely bloody revolting. <laughs> Did he? Do you want to know what the Labour MP... Marcus Lipton said about it. What did he say? He said, uh, if pop music is going to be used to destroy our established institutions, then pop music ought to be destroyed first. Oh. I don't know. How would you destroy? How would you destroy pop music? I don't know. Simon Cowell. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he was playing a very yeah, long game. <laughs> very, very long game. I mean, this is, so this is, I mean, it's kind of this kind of Oedipal sequence where artists react against predecessors so the sex pistols famous to do that with the rock and roll swindle yeah you know, that long list of of rock stars who they hate didn't who was the one who who got chucked out for liking the beatles oh um is it glenn matlock was it glenn matlock one of them got thre- got, ex- got <laughs> supposedly got thrown out for liking the beatles but the thing with the queen though that's interesting though is that this has only happened once so in the whole course of her reign and we're up to the platinum jubilee now and in, in all that time, this is really the only moment I can think of where there's been well, a cultural backlash yeah. against – I mean, obviously there have been moments when her popularity has dipped, but this is the only time I can think of where there have been images like this. But I would say it's not a, a reaction really against the Queen. It's the Queen as icon, isn't it? Yeah, it I, I, I totally agree, Tom. And it's the Queen – so she's photographed by Cecil Beaton, yeah. who is a kind of the, the representative of a previous generation. Of artists, he's and like fact, the ultimate sort of staid society photographer. That, that that's what they're reacting against, rather than her herself. He used to be my next door neighbour, Cecil Beaton. Yeah, you're old enough to have lived next door to Cecil Beaton. He he um he had this huge Queen Anne house in Broadchalk, the village I grew up in, and we had the house next door to it. Did you sometimes kick a ball? Oh, you wouldn't have kicked a ball. You'd have, you'd have. Well, you remember we we set up the cricket net on the day that um, the Falklands War broke out. I do remember. Listeners and, will remember. and we would occasionally kick a, a, a hit a, a cricket ball or kick a football over the wall so that we could go and explore Cecil Beaton's garden. He was very nice. He didn't mind it at all. Occasionally, we'd oh. run into him and he'd just beam at us cheerfully. So I'm I'm very very pro for Cecil Beaton. Okay, so you deplore this cover. 
Yes, I probably did. No, well, no, I, I'm sure he, I'm sure he enjoyed it. Uh, okay. So the, the sex, I mean, that's probably one of the most celebrated images of the Queen. What it is mocking, though, is not the Queen, is not the person Elizabeth Windsor. It is mocking people. It's actually not even mocking the monarchy. It's mocking people's reverence for the monarchy, which is something different. And sort of, I think it's mocking, yeah, establishment. Yeah. Um, and I think also the reason why I sort of wanted to talk about it, it also again shows, goes back to this idea of the power of imagery. Yeah, like a very subtle tweak, you know, to her eyes and her mouth. To me, it's not. It's a comic image in some ways, rather than a genuinely yeah. angry. Yeah. I mean, or, it is funny. I mean, it's, it is just funny. It's not. It's silly, rather than it's not genuinely scathing or subversive. I wouldn't say. Yeah, it's not like. Do you remember when uh, was it such and such who did that campaign, and Tony Blair's eyes were slit into evil yeah. eyes, demon eyes, new labour, new danger. Well, I mean, and as far as I know, I mean, the Queen has never been kind of burnt in effigy or paraded through streets hanging from a gibbet or anything like that that occasionally happens in you know the streets of lewis for instance yeah no she hasn't and actually if you did that it would be genuinely shocking do you not think yeah you could burn anybody else you could burn tony blair has been burned in effigy and is always being burned in effigy it's sort of fireworks displays next to donald trump or something but no one would burn the queen and it would be really really yes i think people would be genuinely shocked by that i also think it's quite cool because it shows that connection between um music and art such a major thing that um jamie reed and Malcolm mclaren did i think that's really interesting there though francis is that um so 77 when you had the silver jubilee the monarchy was lit was about the last institution imaginable that would ever embrace that sort of pop music art nexus i mean when they had the jubilee it was as far away from removed from the sort of pop culture of the day as, you could, as could be imagined and yet you go forward to 2002 or 2012 and the Jubilees then, the, whoever their spin doctors were, pulled a blinder, didn't they, with Brian May on, their, on the roof of Buckingham Palace and Elton John and Paul McCartney and all these characters. Sort of the monarchy, one of the great secrets, I think, of its, of its success in recent years has been the way that it's basically appropriated the energies of popular culture rather than setting itself up as a, a, in resistance to them. Which is, what, which is what the Queen essentially did with the Commonwealth, to go back to that. That all these kind of revolutionaries and radicals who'd been locked up in prison, you invite them along to a grand banquet and the Queen's yeah. charming to them and they all go weak at the knees. I mean, I yeah. think that is a, a, a definite kind of tendency. Francis, do you have any other object that might in any way link the Queen to um, giants of rock music? The one painting, which again, I'll describe it because people can't see it, I wanted to bring into this mix, um, is a painting by Frank Albach, the head of Gerda Boehm from 1965, but famously it belonged to David Bowie. So it doesn't really have anything to do on the surface with the Queen, but hear me out. Or judging by the picture, with the head of Gerda Boehm. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's for those who, who, who can't immediately conjure up what this picture is, um, it's an abstracted head of his cousin Gerda Boehm, who he painted for over 20 years. And with all of his sitters, they would come for the same two hours, the same day, every single week. And he'd look at them and look at them. He would put paint onto a board or a canvas. He'd take the paint off, he'd scrape it off, he'd add it on. And he was trying to capture the essence of them. So it is quite abstracted. There's so much paint that you almost, if you get up close, it looks like a a kind of sculpture of oil. But then a bit like when you do a magic eye painting, if you move further back and you squint your eyes a bit, um, you can see that there is a head. So David Bowie said about it, it hung at the end of his corridor. So he saw it every morning when he got up and every evening when he went to bed. And he said, I want to sound like that looks. Wow. And, and so what is the link? What, what links this to the Queen? So I think this links the period in which Auerbach and Bowie came to prominence in a way. It, mm-hmm. It's a Britain that in the post-war period that was, you know, huge post-war angst she picked up the reins in the early 50s just as we were rising from you know the embers of the blitz that's when Auerbach came as a refugee to London um, and I think it's her reign which set the stage for amazing people like Bowie who you know he was the ultimate shapeshifter in a time where all of these different shapes that he shifted they weren't necessarily that they weren't accepted and he made it he, he he sort of blazed that path and I think it shows actually how how in her role as I guess, overseeing Britain and overseeing the Commonwealth, she's kind of helped to enable that. So, so Tom, are you aware of any books written about Britain's soft power 
during the Queen's reign and her the transformation of Britain's image from a sort of Victorian imperialist industrial powerhouse to a, a nation of entertainers and storytellers. Um, um, Is there a book on the shelves behind you that maybe? Um, uh, mm. <laughs> Yes. Dominic, Dominic Sandbrook's Pleasure Island. Is nice. that the-, <laughs> the Great British Dream Factory is, oh, the, is of course. the title. Yes. So, yes. so yeah, because I have this thesis that basically what happened from the 1960s onwards is that as Britain lost its empire, it kind of reinvented itself and found, I mean, Dean Acheson, the American Secretary of State, famously, there's a much quoted line about Great Britain has lost an empire and not yet found a role. But I think in some ways, everything that you're saying, Francis, about creativity, which nobody ever said about Britain, before the 1960s. So everybody previously said the nation of shopkeepers or pith-helmeted kind of empire builders and all this sort of stuff, even though actually we were quite creative even then. But our, our self-image as, the, as, the, as a people who create these kinds of images, you know, avant-garde art, pushing the boundaries of music, um, you know, in fiction, in poetry, in, all, in film, uh, on the stage, you know, that, that's where our talent lies. And that's obviously Danny Boyle, celebrated all of that didn't it the 2012 olympics and that, that is some sex pistols of course so it all yeah. it all goes around exactly the sex pistols have become part of the heritage industry exactly they have become but well the sex pistols are part of the heritage yeah. industry now and that's something that is absolutely emblematic i think of her reign the sort of when people in the 25th century talk about the reign of elizabeth ii they'll undoubtedly use a clip of the beatles to illustrate it won't they i mean there'll be a clip of like union jacks coming down in you know west africa or something and then there'll be a then they'll cut to somebody with a new washing machine and then the beatles and they'll say this was you know late 20th century britain and i think that's actually that self image of ourselves as kind of hilariously witty and you know creative people is not something that any previous generation of britons would have said about themselves and cool britannia let's not forget the 90s yeah actually david bowie is one of the the few british rock giants who wasn't as far as I know, assimilated into the, you know, he, he wasn't dragged into the kind of the tractor beam of Queen Jubilee's performances and things. He never did that, did he? I don't think. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? I mean, and so when he, he wore Union Jack coats and things, that was, that was like kind of, he was a mod. He was, yeah. there was a, a strong streak of irony in it. Well, I tell, I tell you what, so we, we had the great privilege of selling his collection a few years ago. And when it first got announced that David Bowie was selling his collection, Everyone thought that his collection would be, you know, international sort of poppy, Andy Warhols, Gerhard Richter's, what other pop stars collect. What was so cool about Bowie, and I think, again, this sort of speaks what we're talking about, you know, your title, The Dream Factory, is that he was collecting in the 90s. and He he didn't buy people like Warhol and Richter. He bought what at the time would have been really quite random British artists, but he bought them because they'd walked the same paths as he they meant something to him. They came from the same landscape as him. And so they resonated with him. And I think that's another essence of our creativity that you can't get away from as well, is that maybe it's because under Queen Elizabeth's reign, you know, she, she's overseen a Britain that inspires people like that. And I think that was the most amazing thing about his collecting. And I suppose that's why I wanted to talk about this picture, just because it sort of shines a light on a slightly unknown part of him. Um, he, you know, he never did what anyone expected. And what was so great about his art was that it was unexpectedly British. But isn't, isn't there a way, isn't there a, I mean, I don't know what, what you'd think about this, that that in a way it's actually, I mean, he's a, David Brown's kind of classic example in, in a sense that he was constantly reinventing himself. I mean, that's what he's famous for. He's constantly reinventing himself. But there is a sense in which he kind of slightly ran out of steam and certainly musically and as an icon, he began to to to, to seem a bit, a bit tired he probably was tired after couldn't couldn't you say that about the you know that there was a, a kind of the cycle of creativity i suppose paradigmatically began in the 60s there's quite a strain of, of self-parody in british popular culture at the moment it's endlessly kind of reheating um half-eaten meals in the microwave but i think that's been the case actually since the 60s tom i mean you could argue people were probably i mean i think people were saying that about you know, Sergeant Pepper or something that it was cannibalizing Victorian music hall. It was a, uh, you know, it was back. Yeah, but they were the first was... to do it. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but I <laughs> think everyone else is just continuing to do. I it. mean, I think you can definitely argue that the culture produced and during the certainly the the latter part of the reign of Elizabeth II has been has been 
very, you know, obsessed often with our own history, with looking backwards, with constantly reinter. I mean, we, I mean, how often have we talked about this on our podcast about the sort of introverted, the constant sort of oh, the, the fixation on our on the on the our own history, and particularly the Victorian period. Um, again and again and in a way it's there's some elements yeah, of being trapped in a cycle that you can't quite escape i guess that's that's britain isn't it that's part of our eccentric legacy i mean in a way we're lucky we've got all this history however turbulent it was to reference back maybe you know that's why around the world brand britain they like the sort of edgy side of it but then they like that it's placed yeah. next to a sort of leg a, a heritage I mean, in a sense, it's there in Her Majesty, the brilliant rendition of which we we opened this with. But there was a sense in the 60s, and this again is where Sergeant Pepper comes in, and so much of the popular culture of the 60s, that the edginess lay in taking a staid imperial imagery and kind of making it, you know, groovy, making it something kind of enjoyable, Union Jack, miniskirts and waistcoats and things like that. That was the point. But now, I mean, you know, when when Jerry Halliwell did it, who cared? I mean, everyone had done that. Um, and 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 now, what 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 is there to do? I mean, it's it's so ob- it's such an obvious thing to do now. You know, even the Sex Pistols thing. I mean, that was how long ago? Well, I mean, decades ago. Yeah. Can I can I say something that um, I, I just realised I haven't mentioned something quite key about one of our exhibition that sort of speaks again to the heritage and what people expect from monarchy is that we've borrowed all these tiaras um, to show. And tiaras. Tom loves a tiara, Francis. We love a tiara. What so? What so? So this is your this is your last. This item. is the, this is the our last our last official item, and I thought just to throw it out there, we've borrowed Diana's tiara from her wedding in 1981. Dominic, you you love a you you love a wedding, don't you? You love a royal wedding. <laughs> <laughs> we actually talked about that. We talked about the royal wedding. In we our, did. Our did third- I, did- Third episode, episode, did I say then how much I disliked weddings generally? You did. <laughs> yes, you did. You In did. my capacity as, as Eeyore. Um, yeah, so uh, so this is Princess Diana's tiara. Um, so obviously worn in 1981. The absolute sort of nadir of what seemed like the nadir of Britain's post-war fortunes, the, the summer of 81, because there'd just been the, the, the riots in, yeah. in Brixton and Toxteth. There had been and the, three million unemployed. Yeah, the hunger strikes yeah. in um, Belfast. Yeah, Mrs. Thatcher was the least popular prime minister since records began and all that sort of thing. And then the wedding of Charles and Diana, you know, um, Robert Runcie famously says these things about, you know, the, is it going to be a fairy tale? And obviously we all know that it wasn't. So there is always that shadow, isn't there? So when you tell the story of the queen and her reign, I mean, it, it, I'm not surprised you have a Princess Diana artifact, but there is always this issue that there is the sort of there, there are always, you know, there are there are sort of skeletons rattling than the on the in the closet, aren't there? Um, but do we think that that makes because I suppose it makes the royal family a real family, yeah, in a way. You know, at the one hand, we've we've been talking about how in a lot of the imagery they've got to be set on a pedestal, but then on the other hand, they are real people in a real family, albeit with different circumstances and castles that the rest of us have actually in terms of tiaras i mean because obviously there's only (laughs) at the moment it was only uh noble women and royal women that wore them they're sort of amazing objects in their own right though because you only really apart from the person who wears them and gets to hold them everyone else sees them from quite a distance but when when you do see them up close and we hope tom and dominic you'll come and see them i'd love to come on i'd love to come on it loves a tiara Um, that they are beautifully crafted objects there's so much detail that is sort of lost from a distance so whose tiara is it i mean i know it's diana wore it but is it a spencer tiara or a royalty so we've, or... we've we've borrowed all these things from the, the families to which most of them all still belong um, so this is a spencer the, tiara is it this is a spencer tiara um and what, what's also amazing about these tiaras is normally they're you know locked away in safes wherever they are and they're coming out um for a little outing um for everyone to see and for you and you and Dominic to try on. <laughs> well, that's funny. If you think, if you close your eyes and think of an image of the Queen, you probably yeah. think of her with either a crown, a tiara, or a hat on. A hat. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm now going to think about. Yeah, she's wearing a hat. She's wearing a hat. I, I've tried it, and she. There so was, not there a was the, the great image at the recent um, opening of Parliament with Prince Charles next to a crown, literally <laughs> a yes. crown representing. Well, the crown the queen. got its own got its own vehicle. Take yes, it, it to the. Um, <laughs> it did. 
But and, and a lot of people I noticed, sort of people who I imagine who live now in your neck of the woods, Tom, were being sniffy about this on social no, media. No, uh, people in Brixton, we love we love the Queen. Do you? Prince yeah. Charles is when he Prince, Prince Charles, Charles very goes, popular. He was always mobbed, isn't he, when he goes to Brixton? Yeah, he set he set up um, all kinds of stuff in Brixton, riding Brixton. stables and things. Yeah, so good for no, him. Yeah, I'm very much Team Prince Charles, and he owns the Oval. Of I have to say, I I I'm not. Well, we shall meet on the we shall meet on the civil I'm the not, fields of. Well, actually, the truth of the matter is, if it does come to a succession crisis, I would undoubtedly back Princess Anne. I think she has the steel. Yeah. Well, she doesn't she ha- make as good biscuits as um, not Dutchy Charles's Dutchy I, don't, of I, I don't think she has as good literary judgment as Prince Edward. <laughs> <laughs> but I think she would come south, wouldn't she, with a massive horde of Scots? She would, yes, and they'd all be very good at rugby. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they'd all be clad well, She'd have the best cavalry, like wouldn't she? She'd have the best cavalry. She is. I'm just thinking of claymores. Basically. And they'd all kind of dance. Would they? I think yeah. they'd be cleaving did, people's she... heads off. No, no, their horses would dance. Oh, yeah, because that's, that's her skill, isn't it? Is that her superpower? It's her, her, her Olympic skill. Right. Yes. Okay. Just one last thing on the, on the Diana thing. Yeah. Because it, uh, you know, her death famously created the great crisis for the Queen and she felt that perhaps she was losing the affection of the, the great British public. And basically she, she has, that turned out not to be the case. And yeah. I, I don't know what, what proportion of people want a Republic about 20%. Is it something like that? It's been pretty static, actually. It has grown a little bit, but it's remarkable how, how weak Republican sentiment is. I would say given, you know, if you were asking people in the 1960s or 1970s, I think they might expect it to have grown more than it has. But I mean, a question, which is when she dies, um, do you think she will be seen to have made the future safe for monarchy? So safe for Charles, safe for William, or will she, will her reign seem like something that, um, you know, it lasted so long. And then when she went, everything went, what do you think, Dominic? Cause you compared her to, uh, what's his name? The Austro Hungarian Franz Josef. Yeah. Franz Josef. I'm, I'm a big fan of him. Um, uh, but he oh, reigned for years and years and years, and then he did. But he that his that that only fell apart really because of the, the First World War, I would say. And um, I think, yeah, I, I think she'll she'll hand over the the baton with the institution in actually pretty good shape, con- considering how it could have been. You know, if you think about the pressures of the late twentieth century, the the death of deference, the rise of populism, the you know the the sort of unbridled attention of the media. I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody coping as well as she coped. Right. So actually. that's, you know, how will Charles, how will... William well, of course, cope? we'll be living in a different world then. And actually, I would say, I mean, if how will they cope? I mean, in a way, the less they do, the better. Or they bide their time and wait for their loyal henchmen to <laughs> right. back them in an unexpected grab for the I, I don't think Prince Edward's ever going to be king, Tom. We can dream. Right. Francis, do you think Prince Edward would be king? Final question. Is, is this more about a vote, though, for Tom or Dominic? No, I'm just asking like you, do you think Prince Edward, A, has the killer instinct to, to make a bid for the crown, and B, do you think he'd make a good fist of ruling the country as a despotic, absolute monarch? <laughs> I don't think he's going to get to be king. Okay, well, there you go. Okay, that's a tough note on which to end. But, you know, we're, we're, afra- we're not afraid to... Ask the big Look questions. At the grim truth and ask the big questions. So let's just talk a little bit about your exhibition because um, I believe your exhibition is, fr- you said it was free to the public. So it opens on the 28th of May and you've got, am I right in thinking Joanna Lumley is going to be your Joanna exhibition? Lumley is one of the speakers and all the talks are free. You just, people do need to book though. So just go to Sotheby's.com forward slash Jubilee and people can book their places. The exhibitions though of the seven queens and our 50 tiaras are totally free. You don't have to book for that. You can just come in at any time. We're open from nine till four thirty. We're doing a, a, a children's weekend, so that's when we've got the Battle of the Bears. The Battle of the Bears. I have to say, the Battle of the Bears is that's what great. lure me in rather than the tiaras. The Battle of the Bears sounds amazing. I had fifty tiaras though. Well, that the Battle amazing. of the Bears. Why don't you combine the two and have the Battle of the Bears with them wearing the tiaras? <laughs> or they could fight over the tiaras. <laughs> yeah, or fight with the tiaras. I, th- I think fifty to fifty tiaras. I mean, that's. That's an impressive number of tiaras. What's a collective noun yeah, of tiaras? Say, collective. Tiara, a glitter, exactly. A glitter, a dazzle, a dazzle of tiaras. Tom, you've got such a sort of, you missed your vocation as a tiara enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> and so what other, what, apart, so we've, we've had six items on, on this. What, what other are the standout items that you've got? So I, I do have one item, which 
it kind of links to Commonwealth, going back to what we were talking about. Uh, it's a bit abstract. So it's a sculpture by Barbara Hepworth. And it's carved out of a single piece of wood. It's tall and oval. And it has these really elegant um, sort of holes in it, I guess. And those <laughs> holes, those holes are painted white. And it was it was carved in 1945. So just pre-Elizabeth coming to the throne. But it, it's really special because it, it's unique, whereas a lot of her work was made into bronze. And I guess I wanted to mention it because we talked quite a lot about Commonwealth, but I didn't have an object at the time to represent Commonwealth. But I think this sculpture sort of does because post-war, the British Council were amazing for our artists at getting them out to the Commonwealth. They sort of saw it as a way of having cultural partnerships and of getting our artists out to a wider public. The British Council sent people like Hepworth and more around the world, almost as their like spokespeople as, as, as the Queen's spokespeople, yes, yeah. to show how creative we were and, and what we were making at home, if you like. Um, and I think this sculpture kind of kind of represents that. Does that it's point quite, about it's quite, soft power again, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and also Hepworth, I mean, she's quite radical. There's very few major female artists, actually, in the pre-war, pre-Second World War period. There's luckily more now. Um, but, you know, she, she she was like the queen herself in that she was a rare thing, A, to be a female artist, but to be a female sculptor, that was super rare. Um, she had loads of kids amongst the way, just like, it's pretty amazing. The queen's four kids, I mean, not as many as Victoria, but you never, that, that, that's quite a feat in itself, even though she did all this pageantry pregnant. And constantly traveling, wasn't she? Constantly traveling. I mean, essentially going back to the, the origins of the Commonwealth, I, I mean, basically whenever there was, um, you know, political crisis or something the government would send her out and and she'd be off to india or ghana or something for months at a time because you have to go by ship and then often as i said they'd send artists works out too as a way i suppose of um telling the message of britain to that wider audience but i have an exhibition of i don't know 20 objects that could tell the story to people wherever it was in hong kong or yeah. um, nairobi or wherever it be in a way, I mean, she couldn't visit all those places all the time, but the art objects could. So right. the exhibition, you need to go to sotherbiz.com uh, slash jubilee. Uh, the big revelation of today's podcast, again, is uh, Frances Christie saying that she doesn't think Prince Edward will be king. And that, uh, <laughs> in the event of the succession crisis, you cannot expect her to be backing Tom Holland's favoured candidate. So on that bombshell, do go to the Sotherbiz exhibition. Um, enjoy the Jubilee and thank you again, Francis, for a really fun conversation. And we'll see you all next time on The Rest is History. Goodbye. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at Rest is History Pod. Dot com. That's restishistorypod.com. Dot